Welcome to Mind Matters News. This is Dr. Michael Egner. Um, I have the great pleasure and privilege today to um, uh, speak with uh, Dr. Joshua Ferris. Dr. Ferris is the Humboldt Fellow at the Rural University of Bochum. Uh, he uh, specializes in religious anthropology and has thought and written very deeply on philosophy of mind. Uh, and uh, recently or organized a wonderful conference that I had uh, the privilege of being involved with. It was a conference uh, for design and theology project. Uh, welcome, Joshua, uh, and thank you for joining us. Hey, good to be with you, Mike. Thank you. So um, I have been looking at a, a fascinating paper that you recently published in the European Journal of Science and Theology called uh, Descartes' New Clothes, Cartesian Thought in Philosophy, Neuroscience, and Theism. Uh, which are three very big topics, and Descartes himself is a very big topic. Could you tell me a little bit about uh, what you wrote in that paper? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So as you stated, philosophy of mind has been uh, of interest to me for some time, especially uh, the implications or application of the philosophy of mind to a religious or theological anthropology. And so uh, this past year in my uh, research, I've been uh, focusing more on cognitive science and biology and looking at uh, different ways to make sense of that as a, a real source of knowledge for uh, theological construction or uh, religious construction. And so uh, one of my projects uh, was this one that you've mentioned, Descartes' New Clothes. And in it, uh, it's kind of a different paper than what I've written before because it's a kind of a mix between uh, the history of philosophy the analytic philosophy of mind, and then looking at the implications of those together for uh, theism, of which there is um, a growing set of literature and fascinating literature that overlaps with both uh, science and philosophy. And so this is a, and I say that normally, uh, well, I haven't written on this, and, and there, typically these aren't brought together. Typically historians of philosophers are not... Uh, kind of doing the same sorts of things as analytic philosophers. There's very much a sort of a niche, detailed sort of uh, focus in analytic philosophy, whereas the history of philosophy, they're looking at larger patterns within um, uh, history and philo uh, sort of philosophical moods, patterns, and uh, signs and the like. And so uh, in part, this paper as a way to, um, I kind of, I've, I've thought about this over the last several years. It wasn't directly related to my uh, fellowship research, but I started thinking about it again this past or last year. And it uh, not only was fascinating to me, but it seemed to be or set up some framework or some background for thinking about where contemporary uh, philosophy of mind, personal identity uh, discussions have been. Um, you know, for the last 60 years or so, and how they've developed. And so in this paper, in part, it's motivated by uh, Tom Sorrell's book, Descartes Reinvented, where he um, does something similar, which is unusual for an analytic philosopher to sort of tap into the history of philosophy in a richer way and, and bring that into conversation with contemporary analytic philosophical discussions, which he does in his book. And I, uh, I come out this um, to some extent as um, uh, a theologian or philosophical theologian. 
And I saw some, some places to really upgrade some of his thinking, especially as it pertains to um, uh, neuroscience. And so how uh, some of Descartes' ideas seem to be in the background of both a, a relevant contemporary analytic discussions as well as neuroscientific discussions. And these discussions together have uh, live, it seems, implications for uh, theism. Uh, and they seem to yield or point to or uh, signify theism in some way. And so, as you know, in, in many of the um, philosophical as well as scientific discussions, Descartes kind of a whipping boy. And his ideas have, he, in, in some ways, it, I argue that his ideas are not only in the background, but he's kind of left a ghost-like impression with us that is always there. In an overwhelming sense, he's in the background of these discussions. And so I try to really bring that out in this paper and discuss some of the ways in which that is the case or seems to be the case. Most moderns would say, well, he's always there for better or worse. <laughs> that, that, yeah, but he certainly is always there. What are Descartes' old clothes? That is that you describe his new clothes in your, in your paper, but, but what, what are his old clothes? That is, where, kind of where, where did he start from in terms of his uh, effort to understand um, the mind and the brain, uh, or the, the mind and the, and the body relationship, and to understand theology in relation to those things. Well, so uh, I think his uh, thinking begins um, really in uh, the development of um, a book, um, Rules of uh, Discourse, as, as well as some of his other works that are behind the scenes in his famous work, The Meditations. Whereas meditations is, in some respects, a more mature uh, way of working out his his method, and of course he's responding in his contemporary setting to uh, some of the um, atomists of the day, as well as <clears throat> the Aristotelians, which he doesn't think um, can can do justice to some of the scientific. Uh, work, and he is um, laying out a kind of uh, new science, and so uh, and he's doing so in these these various works. The particularly the, the meditations is of um, uh, particular importance uh, where he's where he's doing this, uh, where he seems to have these central ideas that are prominent throughout the corpus of his writings, um, and they they relate to uh, particularly to uh, the nature of. Um, mental properties or consciousness. And these properties are um, uh, so emphasized throughout the corpus of his writings that later on, uh, for those who are, are kind of attuned to uh, many of his writings, you can see the traces and, and, and how these, these discussions uh, seem to uh, replay themselves again. Uh, in other words, in the last... Uh, really 60 years, especially in contemporary analytic discussions, where these discussions are really live again. So there was, so it's kind of a, it's a metaphor um, for his old ideas that he kind of worked out and then there was a, uh, a response to him and, and there was a kind of a rejection of him. And then there was um, a heightened kind of awareness in, in the history of philosophy uh, in the 1900s, especially in in, in um, adopting certain form, forms of logical positivism and behaviorism, and the rejection of any sort of um, 
mental substance or or soul, as uh, Descartes uh, calls it in some of his works. Uh, per- particularly, he uses the soul in uh, his his later works that he he writes. But um, then you stumble across these new discussions. You might say you might call them new, where there's a rediscovery of difficulties with the nature of consciousness, particularly qualia or qualitative experience, as well as the hard problem of consciousness, uh, famously termed by David Chalmers, the contemporary analytic philosopher. And in many ways, uh, these discussions don't look all that different from the discussion that Descartes was having in the day in his response to various uh, philosophical systems that were... um, parallel or very similar to philosophical materialism. And so, and also uh, the solutions that have been provided um, quite commonly are both a rejection of Descartes' sort of substantial dualism, but what they do offer in its place isn't really all that much better, uh, or it doesn't seem that it's better at all, in fact, and it doesn't seem to be much of an improvement on Descartes and some of them are beginning to look a lot more, more and more, like Descartes' substantial dualism. And so those, those are interesting things, yeah. One thing that, um, that I've, I've noticed in reading the classical philosophers on the issue of mind-body relationship is that the modern dilemmas that we face in understanding that, uh, that uh, relationship really were not dilemmas for the, for, for the, for the classical philosophers. Uh, for example, qualia was not really a problem for Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas and, and all, all of the great, uh, the great uh, ancient philosophers. Um, it, it seemed that, that these problems kind of began with Descartes. Uh, and um, one might say, well, that's because Descartes recognized that they were a problem. The other philosophers didn't. But that wouldn't be my perspective. My perspective would be that Descartes created these problems. Uh, because of his metaphysical underpinnings, um, that is, he separated um, uh, uh, mental activity from physical existence uh, as two separate substances. And um, if you um, assume that physical material things, things that are extended in space, race extensa, don't have mental properties, and then you do as the moderns have done, and you eliminate mental properties. That uh, you don't believe that the mind has any kind of separate existence whatsoever. Then you can't explain them because your metaphysics, Descartes' metaphysics, race extensa, doesn't include any mental properties. So, how do you feel about the critique of Descartes that he created the problems rather than tried to solve them? Yeah, I, I do think that's a that's a common way of, 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 of looking at Descartes. He, he kind of uh, created problems and um, he actually, some would say that he even was the starting point for a more um, stubborn sort of materialism that would follow because of, because of the sort of reductionisms that he adopted in terms of the mind and in terms of the body. So I see him in a more positive light in that I see what he did highlight, uh, we're, we're seeing sort of picked up and developed in, in, in varying sort of positive ways in contemporary analytic discussions. Uh, particularly uh, his, uh, some of his emphases upon uh, the nature of um, 
the inelimitable I or the inelimitable subjectivity. There's something about that that I think was really lost, uh, or at least maybe not lost, but not present in any robust way uh, prior to him in the ancient worldview um, or in the ancient sort of philosophers that gave uh, primacy of place to the the I, the subject, the particularity sort of issue that became uh, kind of heightened or highlighted in modern discussions. So the, these notions of uh, what it means to be a person, uh, what it means to be an I, and how the I functions not only grammatically, something that we can't seem to sort of rid ourselves of. There seems to be some sort of... Um, uh, mental property that's predicated of an I, and those mental properties um, have have sort of been fleshed out in fascinating ways in the philosophy and recent discussions in the philosophy of language, particularly as uh, as uh, people like Als, uh, Alston, as as well as um, others defending, uh, like Putnam defending anti-realism, uh, have developed and picked up on these insights from Descartes and run with them in different ways. But I think the other, uh, some of the other ideas are related to that, and that is the nature of self-authority and the fact that uh, within Descartes' system, we have this emphasis upon some kind of epistemological authority that seems to be primitive in where we predicate our authority. Some, at some level, we predicate authority to the eye that's having the thoughts about their own experiences in the world. And uh, this is uh, related as well to his, his discussions about the nature of consciousness as something that is irreducible, um, certainly irreducible to uh, matter. It's altogether distinct from matter. And so I, I think um, either we do depart from some of his stronger theses or we um, take up some of his ideas and, and sort of mold them into a sort of newer form of um, Aristotelianism or something. I think there's still uh, there's still a really positive stamp that Descartes has left that has really brought clarity to uh, some of the scientific and philosophical discussions because of, well, because of him and his emphasis upon, well, um, how do we arrive at some sort of authoritative um, understanding of science itself? Well, we do so by clarifying our ideas, making distinctions between those ideas, which are all hallmarks of uh, the analytic tradition, which I think, again, harkens back to Rene Descartes and his emphasis upon his whole method of um, meditation and arriving at um, sufficiently clear ideas about what it is that we're talking about uh, when we're talking or when I'm talking, right? Um, and so... Um, I see. I see his uh, his uh, legacy is, I, I guess, much more positive. Maybe too positive for some. And all of this is related to an over a bigger picture of um, his epistemological project of foundationalism, which I think um, too is something that is you know widely discussed today in philosophical and scientific discussions. And again, that harkens back uh, to. Um, Descartes' ghost that he has left with us. And could, could you briefly describe foundationalism? 
Yeah, so Descartes was, um, I think he, so he was really interested in this project of um, undermining sort of philosophical skepticism. And uh, in order to undermine philosophical skepticism, he had to uh, highlight and reassert the, the authority of the I and the I as, as having some sort of inner perspective or um, privileged access to one's own thoughts that uh, precede uh, some sort of third person thought or um, uh, some sort of um, empirical method. And uh, foundationalism is uh, later or was later uh, developed as a, a philosophical and epistemological position that has a set of um, uh, philosophical axioms that serve as the foundation for uh, knowledge itself. And uh, so um, arguably Descartes is, is largely responsible um, for uh, those contemporary discussions that we're having now about uh, what are the foundations of, of knowledge and how can we have um, any sort of certainty um, and there's different degrees of certainty, of course, what we, what we mean by that. I don't, I don't necessarily mean some sort of absolute certainty, but uh, how can we arrive at certainty of knowledge that undermines um, the sort of philosophical skepticisms of the day that we can have any knowledge or we can know anything at all? And uh, so uh, we have to reintrodu uh, reintroduce this notion of the subject and the subject is, as being the sort of primary um, place in which we begin to arrive at knowledge of things in the world. He, he's famous for his uh, aphorism, I think, therefore I am. Uh, and um, it certainly does appear, at least on, on, on first glance, to, to, to be the one thing that we can be sure of. That is, if, even if we doubt our own existence, we, we have to exist in order to doubt. Um, the, but I I've had a problem with that perspective um, in that it is possible to, to think but not to exist. If there are no laws of logic, there are no laws of necessity. That is, that the, the, the term therefore I see as the most important word in the I think therefore I am uh, sentence. That is, if, if logic doesn't apply in the world, then uh, you could think and not exist. Uh, that 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 because there's no therefore, there, there's no logic connecting the two. Um, so it would seem to me that the most certain, the thing that you can be the most certain of, is the existence of a logical framework uh, in in uh, in creation, which I think points to God's mind. Uh, that is that a logic what, what we're living in is essentially the logical framework of the divine mind. Uh, so I've, I, I, I feel as though he didn't go deep enough in the, in the, in the, in the assertion, I think therefore I am, uh, because it really is an affirmation of, uh, the reality of cause and effect of logic. Yeah. I, I don't want to uh, press too hard to defend, um, Descartes, uh, uh, what exactly he meant by the sort of the cogito. Um, there's, uh, there's one um, uh, thesis by a Descartes scholar that says that, well, he was defending basically an axiom, uh, an axiom that is the product of common sense and um, uh, uh, rather than uh, this sort of um, airtight uh, argument. But I, I do think 
Picking up on um, the epistemologist Roderick Chisholm, I think um, he develops something that I think is implicitly Cartesian in character in this, along these lines, that there is this ineliminable cogito, cogito that we can be certain of or sure of and maybe have even infallible certainty. Now, that's too strong, but maybe, um, maybe, but maybe that's too strong. I don't know, but um, we can certainly have it can certainly uh, provide or furnish um, a part of the foundations of our knowledge that is uh, the most certain thing that we can know. If there is a logical structure in the world, um, he says, well, we arrive at the knowledge of the logical structure uh, by this sort of ineliminable eye. And uh, Roderick Chisholm calls these sort of self-presenting properties that um, uh, for us to sort of have access or even, um, or any sort of awareness of any sort of logical structure as being sort of the um, uh, providing uh, the um, the foundations for a knowledge. He would too say that for us to have that, there's always a property of presentation that is um, present and distinct from uh, representation. And so there is some sort of self-presentation that is always implicit in our knowledge of what is within the logical framework of the world. And so that becomes something that is foundational. And Roderick Chisholm is doing something kind of different than Husserl. Husserl is very Cartesian also in his sort of phenomenological project. And in his phenomenological project where he takes um, basically phenomenology is a project that takes uh, phenomenal experiences somehow uh, basic and basic, a basic indicator uh, of of, uh, what is in the world and what we can know. Um, And it it serves as a kind of, um, for him, well, the inverse of sort of the Kantian sort of transcendental and Anyway, in his um, phenomenological structure, uh, Husserl develops these uh, these ways in which we um, uh, actually do have these sort of this intentional relation between our consciousness, our conscious awareness, and the things that we come to know, so that we can know uh, when we come to know something in our phenomenological experiences that there's always this intentional structure that it's already rooted in, um, which presupposes an I that is um, metaphysically certain or uh, uh, unchallenged. And uh, we can have uh, uh, certainty about it, It, at least some sort of uh, psychological certainty, if not, um, well, epistemic certainty. And, um, of course, you have some contemporary epistemologists only a few in the world, not very many, who are arguing, well, we actually have metaphysical certainty about these things and about the fact of the eye uh, that that uh, lends credence to a sort of a kind of apodictic certainty about things in the world. So I think it's kind of hard to eliminate the, the cogito structure that um, Descartes so famously pressed uh, upon our sort of um, kind of the social awareness and the, the, the history of philosophy. I think it's hard to kind of excise that from our system. Eleanor Stump, who's a, uh, I'm sure you know, she's, she's a um, philosopher who kind of works from an Aristotelian perspective. She's uh, at St. Louis University, has argued 
that, uh, as have many philosophers, that we don't really have certainty at all. That is, that there is absolutely nothing we can be certain of. One might even say that you can't even be certain that there is no certainty. Uh, that, 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 that we are completely dependent upon faith of one sort or another to make sense of existence, uh, that we cannot get by without faith. Um, and her argument for the existence of God is that um, a, a theist, uh, certainly a Christian theist, uh, believes in a rational God uh, who created a rational universe with cause and effect that can be understood and with laws of logic, uh, and that he wouldn't deceive us. So our, our faith in the rationality of, uh, of our existence is grounded. It's well, it's well grounded metaphysically. Uh, it's still faith. Uh, it's still a radical faith, uh, but, but it's grounded. Whereas an atheist or, or someone who denies the rationality of God has no ground for their faith. And, and they have faith no, uh, no less than uh, the Christian theists do. Um, so, uh, I mean, I certainly don't doubt that I exist, but I do doubt that that can be demonstrated without faith in the validity of logic and reason and still faith. Yeah, I, I, I guess I, I would have to um, look at her argument in more detail. I think um, even if it's if it's faith, there's still this um, self presentation that is. Uh, I, I, I uh, it's hard for me to to know that I can know that there's these logical principles that are real that exist in the world and that are um, that exist in a way that uh, I could know without knowing that I also exist. Well, um, Wittgenstein perhaps spoke. To this, not not about stump, but 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 to this dilemma, I think rather nicely in saying that that uh, you know I just paraphrase him that that there are two ways that we think of as knowing. One is to know in terms of perception and conception and so on, and the other is to experience things. And experiencing something is not a kind of knowing, really. It's just experiencing. For example. Um, I can know if someone else has a pain based on how they behave. They can say, ouch, and shake their finger and things like that. But that's not how I experience pain. I just experience it. And what I experience is not a kind of knowledge. It's not an, it's not an epistemological question. It's an experiential question. Uh, now, if I wanted to know that I have pain, I could look at myself in a mirror and see how I behave and you know, infer from the way I behave mirror that I was having pain, but I don't, I don't need to do that because I'm actually having the pain. But having the pain isn't a knowledge about my pain. It's just having it. And one could say that may trace back to Descartes, who, who I guess kind of said that there is this um, undeniable I, this undeniable um, essence of me uh, that, um, that you can't get around. And I think that that is true. But I don't know that that kind of eye can be demonstrated logically. It's just a matter of experience. Yeah, this is this is uh, interesting. It takes us into a discussion uh, that I wouldn't claim to be an expert on. I I would say this though. I mean, in terms of there are different um, when we're looking at say uh, the philosophy of beliefs and um, philosophy of experience. There there is um, some might argue. <clears throat> like um, Edmund Husserl and Roderick Chisholm, that there is a sort of intentional framework that is implicit knowledge already 
that we have knowledge of, or we, we know uh, that's implicit in all of our experience. And without that intentional structure, our experience, uh, the experienceables or quality, uh, the qualias uh, would not make any sense apart from that intentional structure, which itself is implicitly knowable. Um, even if it's not um, something we could articulate or something that we have awareness of or uh, that we, I guess, well, just articulatable knowledge. I was looking for uh, the technical term, but I'm, I'm, I'm fa- my mind is failing me at the moment. But there is, um, I, I think this comes down to this, this, um, this bigger discussion about the categorical nature of uh, foundational knowledge, uh, foundational items within within one's epistemic wherewithal, and so um, Edmund Husserl talks about this as um, as being in, in implicitly uh, Cartesian in nature because of the intentional structure that is set up between the eye and this the the properties uh, that um, that an eye can have about the world that is already presumed or grounded in. This this uh, this this broader sort of intentional structure um, of of um, seemings and intuitions. So if we have these seemings, these seemings are already rooted in certain intuitions that we have that are um, sturdy, reliable, and and can't be excised from uh, one system. So he makes the further argument that there is a sort of intentional structure uh, of um, that 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 goes beyond sort of the epistemic and even the the linguistic structure that we exist within and experience to uh, a sort of metaphysical structure that um, that is present uh, therein. And so those are those are uh, fascinating discussions that take us into uh, deeper discussions about the nature of of whether or not um, Descartes was right about uh, uh, some of his own ideas that that seem to furnish um, the foundations for his uh, his overall sort of project, his sci- his new science project, um, and uh, I I wouldn't be so confident to um, defend all of his ideas, although I'm very sympathetic to them, and I think he might be right. Uh, but again, I, I in some ways I think he's he's highlighted things that were not there prior to himself that are very positive and good, but also um, he's, I think he's really working within a broader, um, rather than explicitly Aristotelian framework, a broader Augustinian framework that I think he really just extends into the modern, uh, into modern day. Well, let's, uh, let's speak more about that in our next segment. Joshua, thank, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, I've been, uh, this is uh, Mike Egner. I've been talking with Joshua Ferris. We will um, have a second segment on this. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. 
Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.